Well, good morning to your Rock Hill family. Thank you for being here this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, Matthew chapter 26 is where we'll be. If you're joining us online, thank you for joining us as well. Matthew 26 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, last week, we had the chance, Abby and I did, with the girls, to go to a family reunion, a family reunion, which is where you are introduced to family you didn't know you had. And that's both good and bad, isn't it? There's this chance, though, at family reunions where you can sit back and you begin to reflect and you look back on your family and, and how God has moved and worked in the family. I'm so grateful for Abby's extended family and just their love for the Lord and their kindness towards to include me into the family. They didn't have to, but they, uh, they let me come in as well. And so there's a thing, though, that we do. And like today with Legacy Milestone of, of giving kids a Bible, it's cute to see kids and grab the Bible. Yeah, that's fun. But there's something significant about that because it's when kids really begin to read and understand and have comprehension. And so we want to put the, the most treasured thing in their hands to read. And so it's a milestone. And there's all these milestones in life. And, and what happens too often is that we, we, we won't pause and we actually won't reflect on how God has worked and moved in our life. We'll just kind of zoom past every marker in our days. We'll kinda just kind of skip over because we're on to the next thing. And there is something good about looking back and just taking that moment and reflecting. But, but then there's the moment of also looking into the future of, of what does God have for me and what does God have for my family. And so there's this anticipation that is built from looking back and then also looking forward. And in our text, we've been in this moment where Jesus has gathered the disciples for during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they're going to have the Passover meal, and Jesus has had the conversation with this man named Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. He sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We learn in Exodus 21, verse 32, that the price of that, the reality of that in the Old Testament was that was the same amount that was used for a slave that had been gored by an ox, a wounded slave worth only 30 pieces of silver. And yet Jesus was betrayed by Judas for the same amount. And now they're having this Passover meal together. In, at the end of our service today, we'll, we'll take what we call the Lord's Supper, where he instituted this new supper with the family of God, and it's intended for those who are followers of Jesus, those who've been baptized by, by Jesus by way of immersion, and so we're, we're coming together today to celebrate that at the end of our service, but it's fitting for us as we open up this text in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26, that we begin to see the dinner before the cross. If you're there, will you say word? As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on. Until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you will fall away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, 
I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. The first reality in our text is that we have to to look back. we got to look back. Jesus would have gathered the disciples for this Passover meal. And there's lots of elements that would have gone into a Passover meal that the Jews would have celebrated. They celebrated the Passover meal as a signifier of what took place at the first Passover in Egypt. But Jesus is going to say some things, and his, his little economy, his short economy of words has a magnitude of meaning that have been repeated for thousand years or so. That people all over the world from time to time gather and they take of this meal we call the Lord's Supper. They, they gather and they eat of this meal together as a church family and in context that are like unto it. They take the meal and they will eat of the bread and drink of the juice. But they've been doing this, this practice of celebrating the Passover a thousand years before Jesus really had come in the flesh. But in those days, they, they did it a little bit differently. And in fact, it was a reflection back of these promises that God had made. And so they would have prepared a meal. They would have had lamb at the center of the table. They would have had uh, bitter herbs. They would have had bread that was unleavened. Unleavened bread like our pita bread was to pull out all the leaven. And so what you would do is you would, you would take out all the leaven, which was a, maybe a symbol of removing all the sin from you so that you would not have sin when you ate this supper. They would take four different cups, and these four different cups symbolized four different promises. These four promises come from Exodus chapter 6, and I want to show you real quick. I don't want to lose you, but here we go. Four promises from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Jesus says, therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord. And look what he says, I will bring you out from the forced labor. So I'm going to sanctify you out of this forced labor. That was the first cup that they would drink. And so they would have this, at the Passover meal, they would have these four cups. And this cup, they would, they would drink of it out of sanctification or for sanctification. Then he says, out of the forced labor of the Egyptians, and I will rescue you from slavery. There's this sense of deliverance that Jesus is, is, is saying that they're celebrating or that they were going to celebrate at the Passover. So the Jews would gather and they would drink this cup of sanctification. They would then drink this cup of deliverance. And then they'd drink a third cup. He says, I will redeem you. That's a cup of redemption. So the third cup they would drink together at the very beginning of their meal, this cup of sanctification, this cup of deliverance, and now this cup of redemption. And then they would drink a fourth cup. He says, "Um, I will take you as my people, and I I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who bought you out of, brought you out of the, out of, from the forced labor of the Egyptians. That will be your God. It would be this sense of this cup of praise. So as the Jews, whenever they were celebrating the Passover meal, and very likely, I would even argue that they had this set up at the Passover meal, that they had these four cups, and so as they would begin the meal, generally in a family unit, the, the youngest would say, what is the significance of this cup? And then the older or the father, the elder of the room would, would say, this is the cup of sanctification. And they would recite this verse and they would drink. And then the youngest would say, what is the significance of this cup? And the eldest would say, this is the cup of deliverance and so on and so forth. And they come to this moment and they're celebrating this time. And so again, after they drank those cups and they would have this bread that they would eat, this unleavened bread. And that bread was to be a reminder of how they had been afflicted in Egypt. They would break this bread to be a reminder of the affliction that the Jews experienced in Egypt. And so, and so they would break it, and then they would have these bitter herbs of the bitterness of the time. That, and so they would eat these herbs, bitterness of the reality of 
what they had to endure. And then they would have the lamb and they would, they would eat of the lamb, the unblemished lamb together that was at the center of the table. And they would eat it likely in silence and solitude. All of this was how they would have traditionally done a Passover meal. But Jesus, on the outset, does something and he turns it all on its head. Notice what he says at the verse 26 in Matthew 26. While they were eating, so now they're beginning the Passover meal, Jesus took bread and he blessed it. He didn't give thanks to God for it. He just blessed the bread and he, he broke it. And what does he say? He gave it to the disciples and he says, take and eat. This is my, this is my body. So instead of starting with the cups, Jesus begins with the bread. Instead of starting with sanctification and deliverance and redemption and then praise, Jesus begins with the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body. Now, Jesus isn't teaching cannibalism, all right? Jesus isn't saying, uh, you got to eat me for you to be saved. He's giving symbolism. It's significant, but it is symbolism nonetheless. We know it's symbolism because he says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. And Jesus wasn't a loaf of bread walking around. Jesus is giving symbolism. But he says here, he says, this is my body. He's, he, what is he saying to them? If in the past they would have the bread to kind of signify the affliction of the Jews in Egypt, he's now saying you no longer are to look back on your affliction, but now you are to look at my affliction for my people. No, no longer are you to peer into the affliction that the people of Israel experienced now. No, oh, no, no, now, now. Look at my affliction for you. So now when you look back on this supper, you're watching my body being broken for you. It's significant because for them, they had always looked back on the affliction of the people and the bitterness of that time and how they needed to be rescued. But now Jesus is saying, no, 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 look to me because it's going to be my affliction for you that now will be part of your redemption. And Jesus breaks the bread. He turns it all upside down. He, he then takes a, a cup in verses 27 and 29. He takes a cup and he, a cup is one of those unique things, isn't it? A cup is universal. Uh, everybody knows what is a cup. For instance, well, I remember being in India and we were going to have supper. And at the supper, we didn't have plates. They didn't have any plates for us. Uh, we, we had a big leaf. And on that leaf, they had put the rice. And on that leaf, they had put the vegetables. And on that leaf, they put what they called a, a whole chicken. You say, wow, that's a lot. No, it's just an egg. Uh, you realize that when you eat an egg, you're eating an entire chicken? Okay, good. You're with me now. So when you have your eggs, you say, how many whole chickens did you eat today? I had three whole chickens. It's amazing. But universally, not everybody has this setup like I had going to my grandmother's. We had a plate and then a smaller plate and then even a plate outside of that. And then we had a fork and a smaller fork, which I had no idea what that was for. And then even a smaller fork at the top. And then we had a knife and a spoon and then even a, another knife, which apparently was just for your butter. And then we had a cup. And then we, uh, I didn't know what any of that stuff was. Universally, we don't all use the same utensils because even in India, when we didn't have forks, we, we used bread that we would cut off, almost like a tortilla, pita bread, and we would dip our hands into and pick it up and eat together. But a cup, a, a cup is universal, isn't it? I, the only thing that can hold the fluids in is a cup. I mean, if you tried to put water in your hands, it's going to fall through quite immediately. 
But, but a cup holds the juice. It holds the drink inside of it. And Jesus says, hey, here's the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. He's signifying, not that it literally has become his blood, but rather it's symbolizing that his blood was in that cup. Taking of that blood meant that his blood was going to be applied to you. Now, because we did not grow up and have not grown up in an Old Testament world, the Bible is very clear about two realities when it comes to blood. The Bible teaches two clear realities when it comes to blood. The first is this, if you don't have blood, you die. Now, you all universally go, well, yeah. But they understood very easily that if something did not have any blood in it, it was dead. I mean, it would die quickly. If, if you began to bleed and could not stop the bleeding, you would die. We, we've known this for centuries, but it wasn't only maybe the 18th century that we began to realize all the implications of blood and how our bodies work. But, but for them, they knew clearly that if, if a life was only a life and it would not have any more life if it did not have blood. That's the first reality the Bible teaches about blood. The second reality that the Bible teaches about blood is that the only way for you to be forgiven, the only way for you to have redemption, the only way for you to have your sins atoned for was that somebody else's blood or something else had to be slaughtered on your behalf. I'll show you this in Hebrews 9, uh, verse 22. Hebrews 9, 22 says this, according to the law, the law was found in Leviticus 17, 11. Leviticus 17.11 simply says this statement that it says here, that the only way for you to have atonement for your sin is for something else to sacrifice itself on your behalf. There is no forgiveness. That if something's blood is not shed, you cannot be forgiven. This was instituted not recently. This was instituted at the garden. You remember the garden. Adam and Eve had the, the, the whole place to themselves. They had no t-ball to run to or soccer or they had nothing. And yet, God says to them, you can have the fruit of any tree you would like except for the fruit of the knowledge of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Now, was God being restrictive? No, God was being protective because he was testing them to see would they try to find knowledge and truth outside of God himself. And of course, it did not take long. They take of that fruit. They eat of it. Their eyes are open and they have been disobedient to the Lord. They're finding and searching for truth outside of God himself. And what happens? They, they put a fig leaves on themselves, which you and I know that when leaves fall, they are dead. And so those weren't going to last. And so daily they're putting these leaves on. But what, is, what does God do? God takes an animal, he sacrifices it, and clothes them with animal clothing. It's the first sacrifice in the scriptures. It's a snapshot of, of the reality of this system that was set up, that there was going to be an animal sacrifice. And so anytime somebody sinned throughout the Old Testament, they would take an animal and they would slaughter it so that they could be forgiven. And then once a year, the chief of priests would walk into the holies of holies and the high priest would walk into the holies of holies, and he would take an unblemished lamb. He would slaughter it and sprinkle its blood all over the mercy seat. You say, this is gory. Why all the blood? What's your fascination? Again, the Bible, they teach us that anything that does not have blood in it will die. And the only way for you to be forgiven is with the sacrifice of another in your place. And so Jesus is saying to them... Just as you have constantly had to sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice 
for your forgiveness of sins. Now I'm giving you a new covenant, a cup of the new covenant, that when you drink it, you won't have to do sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It's once and for all, for all of eternity. Jesus is elevating his cup. Now remember, they would have had four cups that they would have drunk, but instead Jesus circumvents that, and he says, no, no, now there's just one cup. Now there's this one moment of bread. Now there's this one moment of this cup. Now traditionally, the Jews, they would have also then taken those bitter, bitter herbs and they would have taken, taken that lamb and eaten of it, but we have no indication in the text that they ate the lamb at the center of the table. Now, why did they not eat of the lamb at the center of the table? Well, it's because the lamb of God was at the head of the table. You certainly remember when John the Baptist comes onto the scene, he, he sees Jesus, and what does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's identifying Jesus as the only one who can take away all of their sin. And so now Jesus is saying, just as you broke bread and ate of it to remember the affliction of your people, now you're going to look back and you're going to remember my affliction for my people. And just as you've taken this cup and you drink of it, and, and just as you had slaughtered animals so that you could be forgiven now, 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 when you take this cup and you drink of it, you will be forgiven. Now again, Catholics teach in transubstantiation of the elements. What do I mean by that? They believe that when, when the elements are presented, there's, there's something that special happens. Usually a bell is rung in those services, and the elements transform into the literal body of, and blood of Jesus. Now, we don't teach that because throughout the Bible, Jesus used illustrations to describe himself. He, he described himself, as we've already said, the bread of life. He described himself as living water. Was, was Jesus really water? No, no. He described himself as the lion from the tribe of Judah. Was, was Jesus a lion? No. Jesus described himself as the, the, the cornerstone of which whom all of those builders rejected. All throughout the scriptures, Jesus used illustrations to symbolize who he was. And so we don't believe that the elements become the literal body and blood of Jesus, nor do we affirm what many Lutherans teach, that it's consubstantiation, which means that while the elements don't literally transform into that, there's the presence of Jesus is in and around and above and below the elements. We rather teach that it's symbolic. It's significant, but it is symbolic. It's, it's important, but, but nonetheless, it's symbolic. It's a reminder, a, a looking back at the body and blood of Jesus. And again, the Lamb of God was there in their presence. The blood was going to be spilt for them. He would be crucified. And so we look back. Now, anytime you and I are hungry, we eat. <laughs> and just as we hunger and then we eat when we're hungry, so we should hunger at this meal, but not for physical food. We should hunger for him. But not only do we look back, we also begin to look forward. Look what happens in verse 31. They, they had sung a hymn, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus says to them in verse 31, he says, tonight all of you will fall. He says, all of you will fall away because of me. You have this moment where Peter, and I love Peter's heart, and I love his passion, and I think many of us might share the same with him, but he says, I, I won't do that. Surely, I'm not going to do that. But notice that in the previous passage, it had been, there will be one of you that will betray me. And now, Jesus is saying, all of you are going to fall away. 
All of you are going to turn your back on me. All of you will go your separate ways. All of you will fall away. Why? Because of me. He then quotes from Zechariah a a prophecy that the shepherd's going to be slaughtered and the sheep will scatter, which is exactly what happens. Peter says, "I, I won't fall away. The others then cry out with him that they'll even die. I will never deny you, but Jesus knows. And so he says to them, he says, I will go ahead of you. I will go ahead of you. After I've risen from the dead, he's telling them, I'm going to rise again. After I've risen from the dead, I'm going to go ahead of you, and I'm going to receive you at Galilee. That's what he's telling them. I've wondered about this. How, how can these disciples, you know, how can these disciples who watched Jesus all these years, observed his teachings, watched him do miracles, and, and yet they're standing here at some point, and they're all of them going to turn their back on Jesus. I mean, if these 11 men who Jesus is saying this to do that, where's the hope for you and for me? Where's the chance for us if, if even these 11 disciples who saw all the things of Jesus and yet they, at some point, out of fear, they, they just turn and they walk in a different direction. They turn their backs on Jesus. If, if, they, if they can't be faithful, there's no chance for us to be faithful. This is the beauty of Jesus. Jesus' affection and love for you is not based upon your faithfulness. It's based upon his faithfulness. Jesus' love and affection for you is not based on your love and your affection for him. It's based on his love and affection for you. See, when we fail to live up to the standards that, that we are called to live to, God so generously continues to pursue us. And so he says, hey, as you look ahead, know that I'm going to meet you in Galilee. I'm going to meet you there, and we will commune together. If, there, if there's any encouragement for us, it's the reality that, it's the reality of a, of a few things. One, we have to be honest about our hearts. We have to be honest that, that we're not as faithful as we even project to be. We have the struggles and the difficulties that we've all had. We've, we've had setbacks, and there's things that we don't necessarily are proud of, but, but yet, They're part of our life. But second, you have to realize that the only way for you to to truly be made whole is not by taking the elements. It's by through trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You must believe in Jesus to be saved. There's no other way for you to be saved. You don't take the elements to receive forgiveness. He forgives you. You trust in Christ. You're baptized as a believer. Then you can take of the elements as a remembrance of what he has done for you. But I think, third, you have to realize that your failures and your setbacks, they don't restrict you from being used by God. I think many of us have had moments in life where we've had setbacks and things that we are not proud of. As we, the part of the reason we don't look back on our life is because we are looking back on so much regret. And we'll allow that to keep us from being used by God. But you need to know Peter, Peter's story, full circle. Peter denies Christ three times. In the Greek, he uses some emphatic language. We'll look at it in a few weeks. Emphatic language with emphasis. And yet, does that prevent him from being used by God? No, as he, and as we look back, we can see how God has worked and moved and maneuvered through our lives and how we can celebrate his sacrifice for us. But then we look forward and we realize, oh, God can still use me. 
Friends, you, you can't take the Lord's Supper. You can't take it if you're coming with bitterness in your heart towards another believer. You can't take it. You need to check your heart and, and ask the question, is there anything in my heart that's in rebellion against the ways of the Lord? And you need to ask him, Lord, I need you to forgive me, even forgive me now. And we know that God is faithful. When you confess, he's faithful to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness. And we signify that as like the wedding day. When you've trusted in Christ and then as you've followed through in believer's baptism, it's like the wedding day. And then taking of the Lord's Supper is like the renewal of your, of your vows. Jesus comes onto this scene with a Passover meal and he doesn't drink from all the cups and they don't, they don't eat of the lamb, they don't eat of the bitter herbs because the lamb of God was with them right there. And for us, we're going to have a moment of invitation. If someone in this room wants to take a moment and just confess their sins before the Lord, you ought to do so. To trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, we're inviting you to do that very thing. But, but even today, to just check your heart. And then the, our deacons will come forward and they're going to pass this meal out to you and, and we're going to Hold on to it and not just eat it immediately, but there's a reason we do that. And we're going to take it together. Because we take it together as a reminder that none of us are to be isolated or on our own. The point of the body of Christ is to build one another up. And so we take it together. And then we'll drink of the cup as a remembrance of his blood shed for us. Let's pray together. Father, we come, and Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to gather and open your word. And Lord, we're asking that even now as we respond in song, that Father, we would be ever so mindful of your kindness and grace towards us. Lord, lead us in this time as we have a moment of invitation that we would respond to you. And Lord, help us to be the people you've called us to be, to do the things you've called us to do for your glory and your renown. In Jesus' name.